All right, welcome to the State of the Laker. Thank you guys for coming to hang out. What is today? It's a Thursday, right? Yeah, I'm losing track of time. I'm on vacation. I'm up in Colorado at Copper Mountain. We had a super interesting uh, situation yesterday. We showed up to the mountain with eight people. It's a family ski trip that we take with my wife's family every year. And literally, I'm not kidding, we got lift tickets for the wrong resort. So we got all our gear on yesterday and we walked up to the lifts and tried to get on the lift and our lift tickets didn't work. And then we literally had to go to the uh, the uh, guest services counter and buy a whole trip's worth of lift tickets uh, on the day of, which was a total nightmare. Thank, shout out to the staff though. They did give us some good pricing that made it hurt a little bit less, but it was definitely uh, an interesting start to the trip. I'm taking a break from some skiing though, because I wanted to watch the Laker game and I got to the film this morning and we're going to talk about it for just about five minutes here at the start. And then my guy Roosh um, out of Houston is going to come up and him and I are going to talk some, some Westbrook definitely have some thoughts in that department. Um, as far as the game goes, you know, we're a bad basketball team in a lot of ways right now. Uh, we had a little stretch there where, against some bad teams, we were able to put together some good habits. But, you know, as as well, as much as I'd like to give the Kings credit for the run they went on in that third quarter last night, when I really dove into the film, it was a lot of bad process. There was a lot of LeBron taking silly early shot clock threes. There was a lot of Malik Monk and Taylor Horton Tucker and Avery Bradley making ill-advised you know, uh, uh, pocket passes and swing passes and post entries that led to turnovers. And we spent a lot of that third quarter on our heels and a team like Sacramento, that's so athletic, especially with the ball in their hands, they do such a good job of attacking defenders on their heels and getting into the paint. And they were just getting straight line drives every time down the floor, you would see often we'd have a turnover guys would be on their heels. You'd have a couple guys jogging back. It's that semi-transition phase that is so dangerous. There's not really any crowd because you have to understand, like, especially when you're guarding guys like Deer and Fox, guys that are really, really athletic at the point of attack, you're not going to keep them from beating guys at the at, right at the, the start of the possession. That's that's what their ultimate elite NBA skill is. That's why De'Aaron Fox is in the league It's because nobody can keep him in front. So as a team, you have to do a better job of making them play in a crowd. And throughout that entire second half, we just did a really bad job of that. You'd see, and a lot of this blame I got to throw at LeBron because even when we would get set in the half court, there were a lot of possessions where he's, you know, guarding Marvin Bagley kind of in the dunker spot. And, you know, someone like Trevor Ariza or Malik Monk would be giving up a straight line drive. And rather than offering any help, he would just kind of stand there and let it happen. And that, you know, that kind of thing snowballs and it turns into now you're trying to score against their set defense every time. Now you're making mistakes offensively and you're back on your heels again and it becomes a problem. And so I, you know, LeBron, he had really good energy there for about, you know, five or six games after the, the Anthony Davis injury. But his, his energy has, has dropped off of a cliff in the last week and a half. And that's been somewhat frustrating because they need more out of him. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people complain about fatigue and talk about how at the center position, he just has so much on his plate and it's too much to ask of him. And I would agree when we're in a stretch, like we were a couple weeks ago when you're playing, you know, five games in eight days, 
but he's getting multiple days off now. We're in a stretch of the schedule here where we're just not playing that often. I think this is the second time in the last week where we've had two complete full days off between games. And we have another set of two full days off before the next game. LeBron should be, in theory, well-rested enough to give more energy than he's giving. Now, that begs the question, is he frustrated with the roster? Probably. And he does have a history of of pouting and making a scene out of those sorts of things. So that very well could be what's happening, but he just has to be better. Um, but in general, you know, I've seen a lot of people talk about defensive personnel with the Lakers and don't get me wrong. You know, guys like Malik Monk had a really rough time last night. Malik was getting cooked all over the floor. Guys like Trevor Ariza. I want to give him some more time to get his legs underneath him, but he doesn't look very good right now. However, we have lineups where we have guys like THT guys like Austin Reeves, guys like LeBron on the floor, and we're still not getting stops, which goes to show you that for whatever reason right now, and this may be trickling down from LeBron, it's just we're just not getting enough out of this team defensively right now, even if you factor in the personnel issues. Um, but the real, you know, the real focus here is Russ, and it's the reason why I'm going to bring my guy Rush on here in a second. And, you know, I think you, you're seeing this, these two camps that are forming in, in, among Laker fans, those who are hyper focused on Russ for one reason or another. And I probably am in that camp myself. And then there's the hyper defensive of Russ. And it's funny because I think what the hyper defensive people of Russ are missing in this situation is it's possible to be mad, not at Russell Westbrook in a vacuum, but at the situation, because the situation here is the Lakers, a team that had a clear, concrete identity that was a championship winning type of identity, shipped off three players that were core elements of that identity, two of them in the trade, one of them through the financial crunch of the trade in Alex Caruso. And as a result, we're not winning anymore. So it's not just looking at Russ and his struggles, which we're about to talk about. It's the fact that as a Laker fan, you're probably looking at the situation going, it's not just that Russ is terrible. It's that Russ is, is playing bad basketball right now. And we are sorely missing the types of players that we shipped out in the trade. So I don't blame Laker fans for getting upset. And I'm confused as to why there's so much pushback on the anti-Russ sentiment, because it's not anti-Russ sentiment, in my opinion, it's anti-Russ trade sentiment. People are frustrated at the situation, as they should. And like I talked about in the podcast the other day, it's just so important for the Lakers to identify that they let go of what made them good and make the shift now. There is no bonus points for the pride of going down with the ship. There's nothing to be gained there. Now, I, I spent the entire morning canvassing uh, teams around the league because I am at the point now officially where I don't think this can work. I think that the Lakers have to find a way to get off of Russell Westbrook. I held back trying to get to this point for as long as I possibly could. But the reality is, even if Russ, even if what Frank Vogel said is true and Russ is in a slump, the reality of the situation is, even if he gets out of his slump, the best idealized version of him right now doesn't work against good teams. He might be able to play better against the Sacramentos of the league, against the Houstons of the league, against the Orlando Magics of the league. But is there really anything that Russ brings to the table 
that generates positive basketball impact against the good teams in the league right now. I racked my brain for it this morning and I came up with rebounding. He's a very good rebounder. That absolutely helps. And he does generate rim pressure. But as I've laid out in the pod often, I'm worried about his rim pressure only functioning against bad teams because the good teams are now really, really well prepared for the rust, put my head down, barrel into the lane. All they have to do is take away the corners. He has no passing angles. And then he ends up picking his dribble up around the block. And he's so small down there that he's unable to find openings even when he is in the crowd down there. You know, and I had someone specifically reach out and they said, what happened to the LeBron Russ pick and roll? Why isn't Russ being the screener? And the truth of the matter is, is teams are starting to put bigger defenders on Russ. Why? Because he doesn't move as quickly as he used to. So he's not toasting people into the lane. And so they just put a bigger defender on him and play way off. And so as a result, that LeBron Russ screen and roll is now a like size screen and roll. Even if they switch it, you're getting another big guy on the LeBron. So you're not even getting the same advantage from a big, small pick and roll that you want from that situation. That's why they're not using it as much. That's why they're going to Malik Monk. Because Malik Monk is still so good as an offensive player, they have to put a smaller, quicker player on him. And so the LeBron Monk pick and roll is getting you better stuff. But what Russ is a basketball player right now just doesn't bring enough to the table good to make him worthwhile. And I'm of the opinion now that a change needs to be made sooner than later. I know that's going to get me a lot of flack. I know I'm going to have a lot of people saying I'm crazy. And I know that that trade is an absolute catastrophe. I looked through the payrolls of the, the lower league, lower teams in the league. There is not a really good option out there. But at this point, if there's a team out there at the deadline who's willing to take on a first-round pick, to take on some sort of asset from the Lakers in exchange for eating Russ's salary, they need to look in that direction. Because come playoff time, this guy's going to be a problem. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get Roosh up here and let's, uh, let's see what he has to say. Hey, buddy, can you hear me? Roosh, can you hear me? Let me get him back up here. Hang on one sec. Sorry about the technical difficulties, guys. I'll get Roosh up here, and then we'll get going. Hey, buddy, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Jason, can you hear yes, me? Yes, I can. There you are. All right, cool. Sorry. I don't yes, know I can. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can. Um, yeah, thanks for having me, man. I uh, always love no talking about yeah, Russ. No I problem. feel like some people might be sick of it, but uh, it just is what it is. You know, I want to start by saying that because I've seen this across, like, Lakers Twitter – we had the same thing with Rockets Twitter when when Russ was on the Rockets. Uh, there's just two camps, like you said, right? There's the people that criticize him, and then there's the people that like fervently defend him. And by the way, feel free to cut me off and jump in if you have any like questions or comments or whatever. But I just want to start by saying that 
from a basketball perspective, man, we just got to call a spade a spade, right? We got to call it what it is. When someone's not playing well, there shouldn't be this like weird blowback or this cheerleader mentality where you can't just call it what it is. I mean, I watched James Harden in Houston for eight years, second best player in franchise history, won an MVP, almost took us to the to the ship. But when he played bad, I, you know, I criticized him accordingly because he deserved it. You know, there were times where he faded and, and he still gets criticized for those moments. So so I think Russ deserves all the criticism coming his way. I, I wanted to point <clears throat> point some things out. And obviously I agree it's not all on him. There are bigger issues than him, but uh, clearly, I'm you know focusing on him right now. So I wanted to to bring up some numbers, man. First of all, his usage, uh, which if you don't know, it's basically usage percent is the amount of possessions that end with the ball, either you shooting or uh, a play being made off of you, you know, passing the ball or whatever. So basically, it measures how often you're using the basketball when you have it. Uh, it's 27 percent for Russ, which is the the lowest of his career since he was 20, 21 years old in Oklahoma City in, in like 2009, 2010, okay? That being said, he's still averaging four and a half turnovers per game, <clears throat> which is right around, you know, his career average is 4.1, so it's above his career average of turnovers, but it's, it's just about where he's been for turnovers since the 2014, 2015 season. And it's kind of interesting because in the 2014-15 season, he led the league in usage at 38% and had the exact same amount of turnovers he has right now, 4.4. So I think that's, number one, that's alarming. Like you saw uh, at the end of the third quarter last night, right, 96-90, he comes down, takes that three, bricks it, it goes the other way for a transition bucket because he doesn't get back. Then he comes right back down, drives to the middle, jumps, passes, it like deflects off of one of the defender's bodies, gets stolen, goes down, Buddy Heald catches a three, and all of a sudden the Lakers are down 11, entering the fourth quarter, right? Um, so it's like those back-breaking turnovers because he gets, he gets to the rim, he gets all the way in there, but he can't finish anymore, and he can't elevate the way he used to. So it generally results in a turnover or a missed shot, and you know a lot of times he just kind of hangs his head, right? And so he doesn't get back. And then it results in just the other team fast-breaking the other way. In addition to that, his two-point percentage, <clears throat> well, his field goal percentage is, um, you know, towards the bottom half of his career. His two-point percentage is toward the middle of his career, 48% from, from two. Um, but the Lakers have gone small, right? And when the Rockets went small, he actually was optimized because he still had some of his burst. He had, I think, the best two-point percentage of his career, 51.4%. And that's why things were able to work. But obviously, as you saw, when, when the Rockets ran into a good team and a team that was able to kind of corral him, um, it just didn't work anymore. And it's interesting because the Lakers have LeBron and hopefully for you, Anthony Davis, whereas the Rockets were just running with like Harden and Robert Covington at center, quote unquote center. Um, but the Rockets had shooters and obviously Russ isn't able you know, to shoot the way that people would hope he can. 29% from three, almost a quarter of his attempts are coming from three um and so all of that i think kind of oh and then the 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 biggest point right is that i don't think it gets talked about enough but he can't compensate for any of this by getting to the free throw line i noticed in houston i I, honestly i thought in houston he got a bad whistle as i kind of noticed like i thought hey he gets fouled a lot at the rim and, and it doesn't get called um and that resulted a lot of times kind of in what i just talked about right he gets to the rim gets fouled doesn't finish falls and then all of a sudden it's a five on four going the other way, uh, which is which functions basically as a turnover. Right. In my opinion. Um, 
But in, in L.A., man, he is getting to the line 5.4 times per game. That is, again, in line with his turnovers and usage or with his usage. It's the third lowest of his career since he was 20, 21 years old in 2008 to 9 and 2009 to 10. And his free throw percentage is tied for the worst in his career at 65.6%. So he's not compensating for the lack of ability to shoot and the lack of ability to convert by actually getting to the line. And then when he does get to the line, he's not cashing it in. He's shooting a career, career worst from the free throw line. So when you put that together with the amount of turnovers that he has, despite the fact that his usage is the lowest has been in a decade, honestly, 12 years. And you combine that with the fact that he doesn't, he doesn't compensate for any of that with just pure hustle, right? His hustle is focused on like, you know, jumping a passing lane or gambling for a steal. It's not focused on, Hey, I just bricked this three in a momentum situation. Let me sprint back and make sure that my guy doesn't beat me for a layup or, you know, Hey, the ball's on the weak side right now. And I'm just ball watching. And my guy in the corner is either wide open and I'm not going to close out in time, or he's going to sneak behind me to the rim for a basket. When you combine all of that together, and then obviously you add it to the high profile that he has, which is former MVP, former superstar, 44 million a year. That, that is why I think you have this, this kind of storm. And then of course you add in what you mentioned, which is the, the, the people you lost in the trade, right? Quintessential three and D wing KCP Kuzma for all his flaws, could rebound, defend, worked well with LeBron, seemed to come up big in moments where he was needed to come up big. Obviously, Caruso walked, um, which you can blame the Lakers management for. So when you when you factor in all those players that were lost and how their chemistry worked with LeBron and AD, and then you bring in Russ and how the fit's not working, plus the fact that he's got all these weaknesses that he just unfortunately doesn't compensate for in any way unless you count triple-doubles. I think that's the perfect storm for what's happening. Yeah, you know, again, we have to, first of all, I loved your description of hustle. That was, so, that was super, super interesting. I'm glad uh, that's a conversation that needs to happen more often. Like hustle is not grabbing an offensive rebound and screaming and yelling or diving on the floor. The hustle is never missing a responsibility that's laid out in your job description. That's what hustle is. Hustle is I have these six responsibilities on any given defensive possession and I never miss one. Or if I do miss one, it was something that's out of my control because maybe an elite offensive player was able to make a move to get past me. But even at that point, I stepped into my next responsibility. Like that to me is hustle. Like Austin Reeves is the perfect example of hustle in my opinion, in terms of like do making sure that your job is completed. Yeah. I've but again, seen you post clips before of him, like just switching, you know, knowing the personnel, knowing who the shooter is closing out on them and then scramming right back to whoever he was guarding before that. Like that, that is what you need to see from Russ, that type of hustle. Yeah, exactly. But again, like, and this is the, again, I have to add, this is important context. Like when I'm discussing the way Russ is playing, I'm discussing it relative to what he needed to be in order for this trade to have made any sense, because you're right in a vacuum examining the situation. The team has a lot of problems that are not associated with Russell Westbrook. So putting that all on Russ's plate is unfair and in a vacuum that should not happen. However, Laker fans are looking at this through the lens of the Russell Westbrook trade, which involved shipping off a bunch of core players that fit directly into a championship identity. So that has to be factored in here. If you're wondering why people are looking at Russ, it's because of the trade. Okay. In order for the trade to have made any sense, Russ needed to hit a certain baseline of his contribution to the game. 
Now, what you'll see a lot of Russ apologists bring up is the good things he does on the basketball court. To be clear, Russ has always made mistakes. That's always been the case, right? He's always been reckless. He's always been loose with the basketball. He's always barreled into the lane when he shouldn't or taken a bad shot here or there. That's always been a part of his game. The difference is these negative things that he does become exacerbated when the good things he does become more limited as he ages, right? Like you have guys like CP3 who you look at their numbers and you go, oh, he's averaging 14 points and 10 assists. Doesn't seem like a ton of production, right? But the guy makes damn near zero mistakes. So when you're looking at Chris Paul's impact, it's like 14 and 10, but it's like 14 and 10 net, right? So when you look at Russ and you go, okay, he's averaging 19, 8 and 8, or you look at any particular game and you go, oh my goodness, he had 30, 12 and 12 this, this game. It's never a 30, 12 and 12 net because there's a lot of reckless rust that comes with that, a lot of mistakes that come with that on the defensive end and on the offensive end that limit his impact, right? Well, as he's aged, it's gotten to the point now where that scale has tipped a little too far, in my opinion. Can I, and, can I elaborate on that? Yeah, go ahead. So, Because I, I think that's an, a, a great point. So the, we measure turnovers, right? And like I said, he's averaging four and a half turnovers per game. But we don't measure wasted possessions like that, right? Where like you, you can't measure the hustle or where, you know, like I said, he, he just makes a stupid play and crashes to the rim and throws it up, doesn't get the call. And then effectively that's a turnover, but it doesn't count as one in the box in the box score or, you know, a play where he falls asleep on defense and it's just an easy backdoor bucket. Like you don't, you don't count those as turnovers. We just count, you know, obviously what they count as turnovers. But in a game where possessions mean everything, he is very casual with possessions. You with him, you waste a lot of possessions, and then you get into this game where you got to start winning possessions back. But because he can't convert threes, and because he's not really getting and ones, you're not winning those possessions at the rate that you need to win them at. Like in Houston, when the Rockets traded Capella, okay, Russ played in 15 regular season games, including the bubble, after that trade. His numbers after that trade were astronomical, right? If you just looked at the numbers purely, you'd think, wow, oh my God, that, that's incredible. He averaged 30 a game. Uh, seven and a half rebounds, six assists, a steal and a half, five turnovers, did all of this on 52% from the field, 23 attempts, and 37% from three on two and a half attempts. And he even got to the line seven times a game, 69%. So those are pretty, pretty incredible numbers. But you can't quantify how many defensive possessions he wastes, wasted. And the Rockets were only nine and six in these games, by the way. And you can't quantify how many possessions on offense get wasted with stupid decisions like the ones last night, like I just described, where he, you know, in a momentum situation where the Lakers are kind of cutting into the lead and they need to finish the quarter strong, he just takes a pull-up three. Or at 120-116 with a minute left in the game, he takes a pull-up three. Like, those are wasted possessions, but they will not reflect in the box score as a wasted possession. So, Well, what's super interesting about it, too, is, is, is like you can see the team starting to try to pull back from Russ offensively, right? Like you can actively see that happening with all of the emphasis on Malik Monk and LeBron James actions. And you can actually see this starting to manifest in Russ's demeanor, as we saw in that really awkward post-game presser against Memphis, where he started to super passive aggressively address how he's being used in the offense. And that's the crazy part about all of this, right? So like you make this trade, Right. In theory, like, like, let's let's pretend instead of Russ, it was Dane. Why would you make that trade? You'd make the trade of 
all of those role players for Dame because what you're thinking is, hey, I might be able to replicate some of those players' impact as role players through the veteran minimum market. And Dame is such an amazing ceiling raiser that in the big playoff series is against the best teams, he's going to bring so much to the table that the trade-off is worthwhile, right? That's the way we look at that. That's the way you look at that trade. This is where the Lakers got caught with their pants down. Russ is at his least effectiveness this year against the good teams. So, and he's shown an inability to, to win the minutes without LeBron, which was one of the main reasons why we've gone in this direction to begin with. So now it's this awkward situation where we've downgraded the guys in the role player positions. And now we're trying to repurpose Russ as like this off ball player. You know, there was another key possession last night where LeBron hit him in the weak side corner and he missed a three, you know, but it's like a lot of him just standing around off the ball. And then, you know, maybe we'll toss him a possession here or there. So even with, whatever the idealized version is of Russ, even if, even if Russ was peak Russ, we're not actually using him like that anymore because we know he can't do that. So now he's being, you know, basically demoted to an off ball player where his, where there's a massive diminishing return, because if he's going to be off ball all the time, at that point, it might as well be Wayne Ellington, right? You know, we're going to get more off ball, out of Wayne Ellington than we would out of Russ standing in the weak side corner. So that's where this is such a conundrum. And like, that's why like guys, like I, I know there's, there's no universe to where you could make a trade of Russell Westbrook now. And it's some idealized impact. I get that. But what you're seeing, especially against the good teams in the league right now is that when he's on the floor, he's ineffective. And the reason why he's ineffective against good teams is because he's easy to guard. And the reason why he's easy to guard is because he can't shoot and you know what he's going to do. He's going to put his head down and try to force his way into a ton of traffic and against big athletic defenses that rotate well and take away what Russ likes to do. He gets caught. He turns the ball over a lot. He misses a ton of shots. He's very ineffective. And so, you know, the even... When, when we're talking about what this team is going to look like projecting forward. So AD comes back. Maybe you make a great trade. Maybe you bring in Jeremy Grant and you have all that talent. Still, when we get to these situations against the good teams at the end of the season, he's ineffective. He's going to be relegated to a guy who can grab the occasional offensive rebound, make the occasional play in transition, you know, he's going to have some positive plays, but with all of the negative that comes with it, with him getting lost off the ball, with him making poor decisions from time to time, all of that's going to come with it. And so then that's why I ask you guys, like, do you think against the Warriors, against the Suns, that Russ is going to be a huge positive player in a playoff series against those teams? I don't. And like, I, I, I'm trying my hardest to try to see the other side of it and to expose myself to dissenting opinion and to try to see, I, I really struggle as a basketball mind and I'm, and I'm, I'm not always right. I'm not even right a lot of the time, but in my view of the game, I really struggle to see what other people are seeing there. Well, I really struggle. Let me, let me interject two things that I think could be positive. Um, they're both obviously going to center around Anthony Davis coming back. And, and I will say, don't, 
don't lose sight of the fact that AD's out, right? One of the big problems, I think, for the Lakers right now is the defense. And Anthony Davis fixes a lot of those problems simply by being on the court. So that's, that's part one, right? Um, offensively, the Lakers have been getting by. They're just going to need to be better defensively. So Anthony Davis can shore up some of those weaknesses, especially some of the weaknesses that, that Russ gets exposed to. In addition, on the other end of the floor, I think having AD out there will help Russ have a bailout partner, right? Someone he can throw lobs to, someone he can run a pick and roll with that he can trust to get the ball to and finish. He's still going to be Russ. He's still going to have his issues. But I do think it, it gives him another dimension of effectiveness because he, you know, you can actually run action with him. Just a pick and roll, like I said. Um, if, he, if he's able to penetrate into the defense, he's got AD in the dunker spot, dish it off, throw it up, whatever. So you will have those options available. Um, but I do agree against the better teams, right? You know, against Golden State, you cannot waste possessions. And if you do waste possessions, they will thump you. Against Phoenix, they're going to have DeAndre Ayton and they're going to have smart, tough defenders, you know, Jay Crowder, Mikhail Bridges, Chris Paul, so on and so forth. And everyone's big. Everyone's yeah. big when you get to that point. What if yeah. it's Drew Holiday that's guarding him? You think he's going to get an advantage on Drew Holiday? I do not. No, I do not. But yeah, I mean, it's like, it's almost like a, like a football offense that's predicated solely on going five out. Like, you know, they're not going to run it. You know, when you have Russ out there, you know, there's no catch and shoot threat. And, and if they try it, you're just daring them to do that. Um, and, and I also wanted to say the unfortunate thing about him is mentality wise, Jason, I, I don't know if you were listening to the epic spaces from last night where, you know, his brother and, and Kendrick Perkins hopped in there. But if you listen to his brother, it kind of gave me some, I mean, look, I don't know them personally whatsoever. So maybe I'm just off here, but his brother's insight was like, he was just bringing up the triple doubles. It was almost like a caricature of itself, right? He was arguing against what the other people were saying by, by bringing up the triple doubles as if that mattered. And it gives you the sense that that stuff really does matter to Russ. And the only reason I bring that up is because he seems to have this, this kind of theme of everything being internalized through himself, right? Like you remember against, against Utah in the first round a couple of years ago when he was with OKC, he took that Rubio matchup personally, like that one-on-one matchup personally to the point where he was trying so hard to like steal the ball from Rubio or shut Rubio down that he would either over gamble and shoot a gap and give up a bucket or he would foul him or he would kill the flow of the team offense by just trying to rock the baby on Rubio or shoot one of those like bank shots, you know, and, and, and everything starts running in his mind through him because he's grappling with the fact that he used to be the man and he's, you know, no longer the man. Right. And that's why I think he even like last night, he took that big shot. Right. Because he wanted to be like, no, I'm Russ. I still hit these. And he took it. And obviously the game was over after he bricked it. So I wanted to add that as well. Yeah, you know, it's 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 funny because I, I was I talked about this in a podcast uh, like three or four days ago. But, you know, the Lakers, this experiment. I know it's hard to properly evaluate it with all of the injuries that have happened. However, this season, even in minutes where LeBron, Russ and Anthony Davis are on the floor with no center, they are less effective than they were with Schroeder last year with the center. They were, you know, plus, I think they were plus 12 per 100 possessions last year with Schroeder. And so for whatever reason, this season, even the idealized situation hasn't been as impactful as we were in previous iterations of this team, which takes me to the Golden State situation. Golden State was a team that thrived off of the attention that Steph Curry draws from the defense and guys playing four on three on the back end. And they had so many smart players that they executed that four on three so well all the time that it worked. 
And then last season they got away from that and they went young and they signed guys like Kelly Oubre Jr. Who would, instead of taking that extra dribble for the dribble handoff to Steph running through after he gave up, the, gave up the ball, he'd jack a three or run into the lane and take a one dribble pull up. And as a team, they were too young. They didn't have Iguodala that year either. You know, they had the same Steph and Draymond, the same incredible Steph and Draymond that you have this year, but it wasn't working because they got away from what made them good. And then this year they brought in all these smart players, you know, Otto Porter Jr. and Andre Iguodala and Nemanja Bialica. And, and they're just all of a sudden vaulting back into contention, even with Steph not playing nearly as well as he did last year. And to me, that is the decision that the Lakers have to make. Because what you have to ask yourself now is, is this not working because of an AD injury? Is this not working because of Kendrick Nunn? Or is it just not working? Because if it's just not working, I know of a method of winning basketball that occurs with LeBron and Anthony Davis on the floor. And that's finding guys that like to do the dirty work. And I know that works. And I know that they could make that change at this deadline and get it together in time for the playoffs. I know they can. It'd be difficult. It'd be hard to find trade partners. But this is where the the Lakers have a little bit of a decision to make because they can either go down with the ship and just say, oh, well, it it never worked out because we never got fully healthy. Or call a spade a spade. When we traded off Westbrook, or when we traded for Westbrook, the fit wasn't great. He doesn't bring the upside that was needed for the trade to make any sense. We need to go find guys that fit our old identity, an identity that worked. And I'm, I'm really curious to see if they go that route. Because I think if they go down with the ship, this team is going to lose. And they're going to lose early. I think, so first of all, to, to talk about Dennis Schroeder, right? Again, it's like that trade-off of possessions that I was talking about earlier. You, you have to look at their production, how much they occupy the ball, how much they make up for their weaknesses, and so on and so forth, right? Schroeder, I mean, for starters, he shot 33.5% from three, Russ shooting under 29%. That makes a huge difference. He turned it over half as much as Russ is right now. His usage, 22 23% compared to Russ's 27%. Um, so, right, more efficient, less usage. Like, that, off the bat, that's saving you possessions. And then he, you know, he gave you what three less points per game, but he took three and a half, four shots less per game than Russ. So like, that's the other thing with Russ, his field goal attempts are usually proportional to how many points he's scoring. And if you're scoring about as many points as shots taken, that's typically not good, right? Like if, if you can't make up for it, like I said, by getting extra points from the three point line or by getting extra points from going to the free throw line and converting those then your efficiency just drops. And I don't mean to nerd out. I'm sure there's some people listening that think I'm nerding out. But if you really just look at it on a possession-by-possession basis and then you factor in the turnovers, that's kind of where you get, in my opinion. Now, the question is, I agree with you. Because, look, in Houston, we a lot of people had the same thought. At, at certain points in times, we were thinking, look, let's just bench him and just go harden in four shooters and just see what we can do. Because at least we know that the turnovers will be limited, the efficiency will be there, and we can at least – you know, have an advantage from the three-point line instead of relying on just a drive and a bucket and a drive and a bucket. And people also forget that shit is taxing. Like, it's not easy to just drive every single play and finish every single play. LeBron makes it look easy, makes it look easy, but it's not easy, especially when you lose your lift. 
like Russ is, and especially when you're 33 years old and getting older, like Russ is. So that was his game, was just bullying and, and bolting to the to the hoop. But doing that over and over gets taxing. So we had the same idea, man. Just go five out, run it through Harden, try to win from the three-point line, and try to go small, switch everything, and just corral everything you can and, and make up for what you lose with Capella with Covington's weak side shot blocking. Again, fortunately, the Lakers have Anthony Davis, so I think they're better equipped to run that type of game. And you're already seeing LeBron can play center when he needs to. Defensively, it hasn't really worked out, but offensively, there's absolutely no drop-off if if not a fucking improvement. So you run AD back, you run LeBron back, but the question becomes, do you have those appropriate 3 and D guys? I think in a vacuum, in a seven-game series, the Lakers can definitely compete with like Wayne Ellington, Austin Reeves, get THT some run. You know, maybe if, if you get the ghost of Ariza back and you can get him useful, that type of approach. But the issue is you still got half a regular season to go. And the reason Russ was brought in, obviously, was to carry the load so that LeBron could chill and to shore up some weaknesses for if and when Anthony Davis was going to be hurt, which he is. So now you got to go all in and, and exhaust your resources early uh, and ask for a lot more from those vets than, than you may or may not get. Malik Monk has stepped up. So I think Malik Monk is, is like definitely a, a worthy kind of third, fourth candidate for the Lakers if they get that AD LeBron lineup, a guy that can just go out there and, and torture you, give you 20 a night, just catching and shooting and playing off of LeBron. Um, but I'm a little worried about Malik defensively. But yeah, his, his offensive fit with LeBron has been a really nice, you know, cherry from this season. It just, he, he was really bad defensively against Sacramento last night. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing we talked about this preseason, or maybe I talked about it with Raj, but the, the Lakers never got that. Like, like the best three and D option they got, I think, unless I'm missing somebody was Wayne Ellington and, you know, Wayne Ellington's cool, but if that's your best three, kind of tough you're going you still there bud yeah can you hear me yeah i lost you for a second but i think we're good yeah no i was just saying that i finished by saying that the list of three and d players starts with wayne ellington and then i think it goes to like ariza who i i was you know describing i think he's fallen off and then after that, it just becomes like a crapshoot of, of who's who. You know, there's really no three and D. There's no size. Um, there's no like all the guys that you have are reliable on one end of the floor, but not necessarily both. You know, like that identity, even even uh, Marquise Morris, right, who I never really thought was that good. He became a really reliable, dependable three and D guy for the Lakers in the bubble championship run. Obviously, we, we already talked about other guys. I just don't think they have those pieces right now. Yeah, so the the moving forward with the regardless of whether or not they decide to dump Russ, outside of that specific equation, the Lakers, in my opinion, need to acknowledge the fact that their vision for shifting the identity towards offense was a mistake. And the sooner they acknowledge that, the sooner they have, you know, if they if they address that need at the trade deadline. I believe this team can get back on track. Now, the, the the Warriors are such a perfect example because they did so with literally veteran minimum contracts. Like Otto Porter, Bielitsa, Andre Iguodala. These are all guys that um, 
the cost of the veteran minimum. And simply because they actually fit into their identity, they were able to immediately make an impact and help that team vault from fringe playoff contender to probably the favorite to win the championship. And I think that's the situation that the Lakers are in because with as great as LeBron looks and he's really declined defensively in the last week, but like we said, we think that's more maybe associated with his demeanor and his attitude as more so than fatigue because the Lakers have had a lot of days off lately. So his defense is inexcusable in my opinion. Um, uh, That said, we know that there's an engaged version of LeBron in there. That's still a devastating two way player. Anthony Davis coming back. Let's say he gets back to a reasonable facsimile of what he was in 2020. If those two guys are on the floor and they're engaged, which they weren't really to start this season, which is a big part of why they struggled even when they were healthy. If those two are back together and engaged, everyone becomes slotted properly that they achieve. They, they all are assigned then a very achievable role. Their jobs on offense and defense are simplified down to a point where even veteran minimum quality players can succeed. So from that standpoint, the goal at the trade deadline and in the buyout market has to be to locate any and all options to try to recreate the types of role players that we had in the 2020 season and the 2021 season. Because again, the shift didn't work. Now, maybe you can get lucky and build a coherent enough defense or competent enough defense around those guys that Malik Monk can stay around and still be, you know, the, the weapon that he is. But outside of him, I think every other person not named LeBron and AD that's in the lineup has to love the dirty work and has to be willing to do what Frank Vogel asks them to do in their defensive assignments, in their rebounding assignments, so on and so forth. Because again, there is no bonus points gained for being prideful. There is no bonus points gained in going down with the ship, okay? Like, I, what I really am not interested in hearing is a postseason press conference after they get eliminated where LeBron's sitting at the presser going, you know, we just never had our full team this year. Because as we know, that's just not how it works. No one ever has their full team the whole year. Even in the 2020 season, a bunch of role players were in and out of the lineup with injury frequently, you know, except for LeBron and AD, thankfully. But the point is, is like, at a certain point, A lot of these teams around the league, even when they've had guys drop out with COVID, even when they've had guys drop out with injuries, they've been able to succeed because from the top down to the roster, there's a certain amount of an identity that they can lean back on even when guys are out. This team doesn't have that. That's entirely missing. But we also know it's there. It's a proven method of success. And even beyond that, it's about matchups. The Lakers size when LeBron and AD are healthy is a real problem for the Warriors. It's a real problem in that matchup. Phoenix, same thing. We saw last year, AD just back from injury, LeBron just back from injury, neither player really in their rhythm. Their physicality on the front line is a real problem for Phoenix. So this is salvageable. It just, it needs to be salvaged. And it needs to not involve, okay, well, we just never had Kendrick Nunn, so we just had bad luck. It needs to be acknowledging the reality that's slapping you in the face. So one last thing, and then I'll, I'll let you talk, Rush, and then we'll get out of here. I should probably go skiing. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, 
the thing with Russ, if he is going to stay, which is the most likely scenario, because it's going to be extremely difficult to find a trade partner in the middle of the season. Russ needs to wake the hell up. What we've seen out of him in press conferences recently demonstrates a person who lacks uh, any self-awareness in terms of what the team needs from him. The fact that he thinks, you know, it's about him not putting up 25 and 14 and 14 the way he used to. The fact that he thinks it's about the way he's being utilized in the offense. You know, I've had a lot of people bring up the mellow comparison and mellow learning through his departure from the league to change some parts of his game that needed to be changed. Well, Russ needs to do the same thing within the confines of this season. He needs to understand that he is not the same offensive player he was in his prime. And so he's going to be utilized different offensively, which is the thing he's been complaining about in the pressers recently. He needs to embrace that and understand that the team needs him to contribute everywhere else. We always talk about Russ being Russ. And one of my consistent themes with this season is Russ cannot be Russ. Russ being Russ is bad for this team because in his role, especially with LeBron and AD healthy, it's about him confining his mistakes and limiting his mistakes. So the Russ brand of bull in a China shop, I'm going to make 10 mistakes, but make 15 good plays doesn't work anymore because offensively, he's not going to be utilized enough to make 15 good plays on this team, especially when they're healthy. So if Russ is going to stay, the only way this is going to work is if he has a wake up call individually and understands that he needs to adapt to the same way that everybody else in NBA history, who, when they reach the second, the middle of the second decade in the league, where they've got to adjust the way they play. And if he can figure that out and get to the point where he cuts back on mistakes, cuts back on the things he used to do and try to, because even at this point in his career, even with his diminished athleticism, he's still a good NBA athlete at the point guard position with great size. So if he can find a way to adjust and adapt his game to his age, there's a version of this where it could work, but that what I what I worry about and the reason why I've advocated for trading him today for the first time this season is because I don't think he's going to learn that lesson. And everything that I hear from him in pressers, everything I see from him in his demeanor tells me this is a guy who thinks he's not getting enough touches. Tells me this is a guy who thinks it's an everybody else problem and not a him problem. It's, it's a guy who's defiantly going down and and that's that's discouraging but i mean if he's gonna stay the only way this is gonna work is if he makes some changes russ can't be russ anymore for the same reason that mellow couldn't be mellow when he was with okc mellow had to become spot up shooter mellow in order to maintain his spot in the league that's where russ is at russ needs to be more like drew holiday a player who devotes the vast majority of his energy to the defensive end of the floor and offensively finds a place to fit in alongside two superior offensive players through limiting mistakes and taking advantage of his size as a power guard when he has the opportunity. That's the way that I see this thing working. But I, I'm just being honest with you guys. I don't see it. I, 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 that is such an idealistic vision. How, like, if you had to ask yourself, 
if Russ is going to make a significant change in the way that he approaches the game, do you think that's going to happen? Like, I don't. But anyway, that, that's where I'm at. And like, again, it's, it's hard because there is a, this team is not as bad as they look. When you tie up all of your talent in LeBron and Anthony Davis and one of them goes down, it's going to be ugly. This isn't like the Suns. You don't have tons of depth, but lack that top tier star power so that when Devin Booker goes out, you're still pretty good. That's not how it works. Because if you make a trade for someone like Anthony Davis, you understand you're top heavy. And when you're top heavy and someone gets hurt, this is part of the problem. So I understand all of that. However, even acknowledging that this isn't working and I struggle to see how anybody thinks it could be, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, man, I'll, I'll end by saying, um, I think you're right. I think the making 10 mistakes, but making 15 good plays to make up for it is kind of what I was trying to talk about when I was mentioning wasting possessions. And he's at a point where he's not making 10 mistakes, but making up for it 15 times. It's like more 10 to 10 or even, you know, 10 mistakes to like seven plays to make up for it or whatever. So exactly. I, I think that, you know, and I told you all this before, before or during the off season, before the season, but man, he is focused. His game is centered around where the basketball is. And that's on both ends of the floor, right? He's not making reads off the ball. He's not seeing the play develop two plays ahead. He's not considering what's going to happen on the defensive end. You know, when penetration happens and the ball gets kicked and then the ball starts moving around the perimeter, he's not looking for the skip pass. Like he's just looking at where the ball is. And on offense, when he's got the ball, he's just thinking about, okay, I have the ball. And so the reason I bring that up is because when you get older, you adjust by seeing the plays develop uh, ahead of time, because that's how you're able to compensate for the lack of athleticism or the loss of athleticism. And then you can use IQ and skill skill. He's not really a skill guy, right? He doesn't have touch uh, both at the rim, jump shooting, whatever. He's just always been like, if he wasn't a Supreme athlete, he probably would not have made the NBA. He, he made the NBA and, and had success because he's an incredible, phenomenal athlete. Um, and we're seeing what he's become w- without that. But I know for a fact when he was in Houston, I will give him credit for trying to adjust his game because in Houston, he tried to adjust his game and it worked. And in L.A. right now, he's trying to adjust his game, but it's not working. But the flip side of that is that adjusting it's no matter how you slice it, it's all about him. It always comes down to him. It, it, It has like everything revolves around him. It has to be changed for him to feel comfortable, for him to operate optimally. Right. The Rockets fucking traded Clint Capella so that he could Russ could get his numbers. Um, the Lakers are obviously made the trade they did and they're now trying to go small and they've moved and shifted the lineup around just trying to accommodate. Nothing's really working, but I know for a fact in Houston, once shit hit the fan and Harden was getting out of there, that he had a conversation with the Rockets brass that basically the message he sent was, Hey, I don't care about being on a winning team. I don't care about playing Rockets basketball. I want the ball back in my hands. So do what you got to do. Get me out of here. And they did. Um, and I think that he viewed that, so crazy to me. <laughs> yeah. And I think he viewed that, that, that season at Washington as a huge victory and like vindication for him, you know, like, Hey, Russ ball works. Like I told y'all, I still got it. I'm back. Watch me work. You know, I just took the wizards to the play into the playoff, whatever. And so, and if, again, if you listen to that space last night where his brother was talking, people were bringing up, you know, statistics, how he finishes at the rim, where he ranks against other other guards in terms of finishing at the rim, all these things. And their responses, two that I remember. One was, yeah, but who's counting all the layups that, you know, rim in and out? That was one response. 
And then the second response from his brother was, yeah, do you know who leads uh, the NBA in playoff triple doubles for the last 10 years? And that was their <laughs> retort, right? Like that's how they processed and viewed his contributions to the game. And I think it only makes sense that those are the voices most likely around him. And they're probably echoing his sentiments and, and how he thinks. Right. So the, the whole, if he can just do X, Y, Z, I think you got to throw that out the window. The only caveat is that if he magically becomes like a 35% three point shooter on high volume, then you're working with something. Otherwise I think you're just going to have to, like I said, before the season started, you're just going to have to shore up his mistakes as best as you can, because he, he does ball watch, right? You can't, mm -hmm. there's no way you can make up for him for his defensive lapses. There's no way you can make up for his lack of what he does off the ball. Um, when he, when he has the ball in his hands, man, he moves first and thinks second. I think Raj said this last night, he passes to, he passes the ball to spaces on the court, not to people. And that's because he's moving first and expecting the help. And then yeah, you that's know. for the record. That's not making a read that that is not making a read. You're not making a read if you pass to an open to pass to a spot on the floor. And, right. mo and, mo and most importantly, there, any good team is going to take that away. Any good team. Right. And, and they do. And that's why you see some of those like errant passes that just like float out of bounds to nobody or whatever. Right. Because he's expecting someone to be there without actually making the read. But but he moves first and he thinks second. And that has always been his M.O. And now that his body is not what it used to be. He's not adjusting to that well. So I, I really don't see – I just don't see the middle ground for him. You know, I mean, I think you're going to keep seeing what you're seeing. Hopefully AD shores it up. Maybe a roster, you know, maybe a trade or, or Ariza comes back healthy or something like that, shores it all up. Or eventually he ends up on another team where they just give him the ball and he can play rust ball and kind of do what he did with the Wizards. I think it's it's literally one of those two. There's really no in-between. But yeah, it'll be really interesting to see. Um, Bruce, I appreciate you coming to hang out, man. Um, all Thanks for you, having me. Yep, thank you guys for coming to hang out. I'm going to uh, get back out with the family and do some skiing. This was interesting. It was like uh, recording a podcast at 10,000 feet, like recording a podcast while power walking. I swear I was like out of breath half the time. But uh, uh, anyway, I appreciate you guys uh, coming to hang out. I'm going to post this one on our podcast feed probably at midnight tonight since we have uh, Raj, uh, Raj's out from last night. This will also air on Dash Radio tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. As always, I appreciate your guys' support. We will be back for the post-game show on Saturday. Thanks, Bruce. We'll see you next time, buddy. Yep, and if I could plug real quick, uh, Ball is Life. Oh, I got a podcast, the number one podcast on Ball is Life. We just did an episode with Nikola Vucevic of the Chicago Bulls that I put out today, so check my feed and give that a listen. And thanks, Jason. I appreciate it. All right, guys. Have a good one.